0: The key documents that are the foundation of our nation are published by the Museum of Australian Democracy at its website, foundingdocs.gov.au. And there's gonna be a significant event for one of those documents this week. Not in the cloud though, on the land when on the 7th of December, one of the original Yirrkala bark petitions is officially returned to Yirrkala. 60 years ago, the Yolnu people from Yirrkala in Eastern Arnhem Land sent petitions combining traditional bark painting and typed text on paper in both English and indigenous language and they sent it to the Commonwealth Parliament. The petitions protest the taking of Aboriginal land for mining, which was, quote, never explained beforehand and kept secret from the traditional owners. And it formally asserts traditional ownership of the land from time immemorial. Two of the original petitions are now on display in Parliament House, a third is in the National Museum. What's being returned to Euricala this week is a fourth copy, which was tracked down by Professor Claire Wright of La Trobe University while researching her book on the Bark Petitions, which will be published in twenty twenty four. Professor Wright, welcome to Sunday Extra.
1: Hi, Julian. How are you going? Going
0: really well, Uh, this repatriation ceremony this week represents the bark petitions coming back to where they were sent from in 1963. But this particular petition has had a different journey over the last 60 years from the ones in Canberra. Could you tell us about that and how you came to find it?
1: Yeah, well it's a different kind of repatriation because we tend to think of repatriation events being about sacred objects or sometimes human remains that have been taken um unlawfully or sometimes pilfered or plundered or collected is a euphemism by um by anthropologists or other hunters and, and collectors, and that they're going back to the country that they came from that they, they had been in one way or another stolen from. This is not the case with the bark petition because it actually was sent quite deliberately by the Yolngu people of northeast Arnhem Land as you suggested in your introduction as part of these four bark petitions that were sent in, um, to the Commonwealth Parliament to protest against the excision of land um, that uh, belonged from time immemorial to the Yolngu people. And so all four of them were sent at the same time. It's been unclear actually how many petitions were made. The two that have obviously been in Parliament House since August 1963 when they were presented to the House of Reps and then the one that turned up at the National Museum was donated by a family member some years ago. But it was a bit unclear how many more might be out there. Um, I was very fortunate in my research to be able to access an archive, an absolute treasure trove of documents that's never been seen before. And this is the archive of the Reverend Edgar Wells and his wife Anne Wells, who were missionaries at the Itacala Mission um, at the time, Methodist missionaries. Reverend Wells was the superintendent of the mission, and he was actually the person who blew the whistle on the fact that these that the government had pulled a swifty on the Yornel people and um and obviously had hoped that no one would notice what was going on up there in the very top end of Australia. And Revan Wells was the whistleblower. Now he ended up writing a book in 1982. It's a very idiosyncratic document, but nobody had ever seen any of his personal archive until I tracked down his son by um, basically just cold calling people in the phone book who had the same surname until I came across okay. the fellow who said, yes, yes, no, um, Edgar and Ann Wells are my parents. And then I had the moment where I nervously said to him, "We, you know, you wouldn't happen to have any of their their papers or records documents anymore, would you? And he said, oh, yeah, I've got everything. I just shut the door on it after Dad died. And so after us Melbournians got out of uh, lockdown, turns out this fellow lives only 20 minutes from my house in Melbourne. And so (laughs) I was able to go there and um, he opened the garage door to me and there's box upon box of diaries and letters and fastidiously maintained notebooks and correspondence files and newspaper clippings files and artifacts and and indeed two typewriters one one of which was the typewriter that Anne Wells herself had typed the Bark petitions on and so you know once i picked myself up off the floor um because this is yeah Every historian's dream come true to to come across (laughs) a treasure trove like this. And one of the things that I was able to establish beyond reasonable doubt because Anne Wells herself turns out to be the person who had parceled up the four petitions and um, individually wrapped them and she addressed them to the four politicians they were being sent to and she herself sent them off and she notated all of that um, in in her diary. So I was able to um, know without doubt that there had been four petitions, also the artists who painted them. Nobody's known that before, uh, let alone who they were actually sent to or when. And so armed with that, I went looking for this fourth one. And uh, a bit of detective work later, and again cold calling a ninety-year-old woman in in Derby, who actually was um, able to find on Facebook. So, um, little tip out there: wow. if uh, you're ever trying to find ninety-year-old <laughs> uh, and and you're not getting anywhere in the phone book um, or online, try Facebook because she she called me back that afternoon. And it turns out this bark petition has been hanging on her wall for 60 years. And she's very adamant, um, this is Joan uh, McKee, her name is, and she's adamant that this is not the missing bark petition because it was never missing. She always knew where it was. <laughs> She'd, in fact, talked to another historian and told him where it was at one stage. But what was the missing piece was that nobody had communicated back to the Yongle that there was this fourth petition out there. And, and fortunately, my book, which I've been writing for the last decade, has been done in close consultation with the community in northeast Arnhem Land, and, um, and I'm very connected to the community and was able to go back to them and, and explain that this fourth petition was there. And Yananmul and Munungur, who is the, the daughter of the sole surviving signatory to the bark petitions, uh, Dungala Munungur, who's in his 80s now, Yananmul um, said to me, Mari, that's a... The, kinship name that she calls me, Mari, you found our lost treasure. She said, Dad always said that there were more than three petitions, but we never knew, we just never knew. And so it's this petition now that I talked to Joan about, you know, what her plans were for it. And she said, well, I I was just going to pass it down to my daughters. Do you have another idea? And then we started discussing the idea of returning it to its original owners and and for it going back to country. And by the next day, she decided um, that that's what she wanted to do. And um, fast forward a couple of years and and some COVID lockdowns. And in Derby last year, we had um, a wonderful, last November had a wonderful Bungul is the Jungle Mata term for a ceremony um, to effect that handback. And five or descendants came to Derby and conservators from the Art Gallery of South Australia and Art Lab and, and myself and and we we went up there and um and, and in a very moving ceremony, Joan and her daughters handed that yes. extraordinary document, that extraordinary artifact back back to the people.
0: Yes, indeed. And the producers of the documentary that's being made about the bark petitions have kindly let us have some of the audio from that day. Let's have a listen. Thank you for
1: having us here. And thank you for, you know, holding on to a treasure. Uh, It's a treasure to us. It's a national treasure. Um, I felt a bit sad for you, you, that that you're going to let it go, you know. But on the other hand, I'm blessed. Mm. I am very happy. It's yeah. just it's such a good thing. And, and we're happy it found <laughs> its home again. So thank you. Thank you thank from you. the bottom of my heart. Thank you.
0: What an amazing moment. And it just gives a sense, I suppose, of how high the emotions will be when the Bark Petition returns to country on Thursday. Claire there were plenty of petitions from Aboriginal people to Australian parliaments and attempts to petition the Crown before 1963. Why are the Yirrkala Bark petitions so significant?
1: So why I would consider these to be founding documents in Australian democracy is that this was the first time that a petition had been put to the Australian parliament in a language other than English. So the mm. petition is in both the English language and an Australian language. It's the first time that the uh, petition had gone to parliament in an Australian language. It's also the first time that a, a petition had been put that combines the governance principles and forms of political representation of essentially the two nations that were living here, our first nations and yeah. um, the colonising country and the, the now the, the Commonwealth of Australia. So the two governance forms are in the form of a paper petition, which had, you know, for centuries been part of the Westminster system and showed a, a particular form of kind of imperial literacy on behalf of the Yorngul. But they were also using a form of communication that was indigenous to the country that it was being created on. Uh, this form of bark painting depicting animals from the land and um, aspects of flora and fauna and wangar, which are the ancestral spirits. And these are stories, they're representative of stories, that these are not actually the way in which these um, bark paintings are done and not actually sacred designs. I, I talked to many of the elders to try to decipher um, what their old people had painted and was told that they're pictorial, they're not sacred designs, but they are using all of the Minchi um, or the, the traditional forms of those sacred designs in order to communicate something about the law of the land about the boundaries mm, mm. about property about title about the clans that own the land and all of that can be deciphered if you know how to read these bark paintings which of course the parliamentarians in 1963 didn't know how to do um, in fact one public no, servant indeed, yeah whose notation I saw in the archives um, when the petition was put, he wrote on, on the side of the newspaper article that reported on it, I wonder who thought up this gimmick So he saw it as being Mm. an an attention-grabbing exercise Um, and the idea that it was thought up by somebody implies that it was part of the the kind of southern civil rights rabble-rousers who were just using traditional owners as as puppets for their own nefarious communist ideas.
0: Yeah, when in fact it really was a hugely significant bringing together of those two traditions and it's just superb that you've found the not-lost-fourth petition and that it'll be making its way back home this week. Claire, thank you so much for speaking with us on Sunday Extra.
1: Thanks for the opportunity. Nama.
0: And that repatriation ceremony for the Bark Petition takes place on Thursday, the 7th of December, and it'll occur in the presence of family members of each of the nine Indigenous leaders who signed those original petitions. That was Claire Wright, Professor of History and Public Engagement at La Trobe University. Claire also wrote the stellar award-winning Forgotten Rebels of Eureka and a history of Australia's women's suffrage movement, You Daughters of Freedom, the Australians who won the vote and inspired the world. And her history of the Bark Petitions will complete what Claire's calling her Democracy Trilogy.
1: Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.